Okay, raise your hand as if I could see that. Raise your hand if you like to make lists. If you you make a lot of lists, I, I make lists, I make mine in these. See, sleek yet compact. It's all sorts of things in here. Uh, what I have to do, uh, who I might be praying for, whatever the case may be. I make lists. I, I It keeps my sanity. Um, maybe it keeps yours too. You have all sorts of reasons why you do. Lists help. They can. Sometimes though, lists can be a matter of life and death. I want to show you a brief scene from Apollo 13. You may know the story back in 1970. There's an explosion on the command module of Apollo 13 that's going to land on the moon, and then it can't. It's It's got a big malfunction. They're going to have to abort their mission, and for a long time, it was sort of touch and go. They weren't sure they were going to be able to get home. This scene is towards the end of their ordeal in which they are going through a checklist, a necessary checklist of things that they have to follow in order to get home. Odyssey, Houston. Uh, how we doing, guys? We're closing in on Lunar Module Jettison. As you know, that is time critical. Uh, we should be making our move into the command module. Let's get the hatch buttoned up, and uh, when you get a chance, let us know how you're doing. Roger that. Hey, let me give you a hand there, Fredo. Strapped in, Ken. We're getting real close. Uh, copy that. Flight uh, 13 Houston. Uh, we're coming up on Lem Jettison. Stand by. Have you got everybody in the Odyssey? Yeah, Ken. I'm going to check those pyro batteries one more time. Okay, pyro bats look good. I don't think we're going to have to tie the other batteries. Sorry, Jack. This is an old habit. Kind of used to the pilot seat. She's yours to fly. Okay, Odyssey. I want to double check some re-entry procedures right after we jettison the LEM, which is coming up in 30 seconds. What is that? Oh, I was getting a little punchy and I didn't want to cut the LEM loose with you guys still in it. It's good thinking. Stand by, Houston. We have Lunar Module Jettison. She sure was a good ship. more than a set of instructions. It was more than a sequence. It was their path to get home, and they had to follow it very carefully to a T. We've been listening to the Gospel of Mark. We've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to follow him? And we're going to consider what is really two moments in one moment 
that is as remarkable as anything that you might expect coming from the life of Jesus. But at the end of this encounter, we're going to ask ourselves, what's, what's there for us? I think it has something for us of a checklist. A checklist of things that we need to ask ourselves, a set of questions that we need to ask ourselves in this life of faith, in what it means to follow him, in what is, let's just call it what it is, a journey home. So let's see what's there. Let's see what the point is. And then let's ask ourselves, what's what's the checklist that we need? We're in Mark chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's throw a little bit more light on the subject, shall we? Now, many moments in Mark's account, Jesus is in the middle of a crisis. This one's true here. He's at the seashore again. A crowd is surrounding him and up walks somebody who falls at his feet, imploring him to help. And it's not just anybody. His name is Jair and he's the ruler of a synagogue. Why is that interesting? By this point, you may remember there have been not a few little dust-ups between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes who are the religious literati of the day. And Jair would have been one aligned with them, but in a moment like this, when you're desperate, certain differences seem trivial. Am I right? This man's daughter is dying. 
she's dying and he believes that Jesus can help. Now, in other moments, we know that Jesus will just with a, you know, a word, uh, the, the problem is solved. But this time he decides, I'll go with you. Gets up that he might lay hands on that man's daughter that she might be healed. And the crowd begins to follow him. That's the plan. And it appears that time is of the essence because she's hanging on by a thread. And then what happens? Jesus gets interrupted. Somebody else starts to call upon his name for assistance, except she doesn't call upon his name. In fact, this person doesn't even want to make her presence known. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. We don't know her background. All we know is one thing, according to Mark. She's been bleeding for 12 years as a woman. That's an affliction. 12 years. And she chooses to approach him in a way very different from the way Jair has. He's there front and center, falls at his feet, makes no bones about his need. She approaches him kind of sneakily, kind of from up from behind. And, and if only she can just touch the hem of his garment. Why the difference? If you have read any parts of Leviticus, that you know that her condition would require something of a quarantine on her part. That what she was undergoing was not just a physical condition, it had both social and spiritual implications. She would have to be in quarantine, if you will, for the duration of this disease. So if you think five to ten days quarantine is long, imagine 12 years. 12 years. That's where she is. And it's possible, therefore, that she's worried about defiling him. This is why she's worried about even being in his presence, because she knows that she's she's not supposed to be around anybody while she's suffering from this disease. And But as soon as she touches the hem of his garment, she perceives that she's healed. And what does Jesus do? He, he could have just sort of proceeded along his way. I mean, you know, the work is done. What difference does it make? But he stops. He pauses. He is interrupted, and he turns around and starts asking questions. Who is it that taught me? Now, imagine if you're the father of the daughter who is dying at this moment. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Huh, Jesus, can we go? Time is of the essence. But he stops. He asks. He wants to know who's touched him. Something happened. Something happened that's good. And, and, and whatever it means that power went out of him, it doesn't matter. But she's in healed. And so now imagine yourself to be that woman. Is he angry? Am I guilty of theft? Am I, have I defiled him? Have I profaned him? Is he going to be mad? What does she do? She, she finally does as the synagogue ruler does. She falls at his feet and she fesses up. She tells him the whole story. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't berate her. He doesn't accost her for her action. He blesses her. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Everybody's ready to celebrate. What she's just been through and what she's now just been delivered from is a cause for celebration. Do you remember the scene from Henry V at the uh, the St. Crispin's Day speech, right? And at the very end, he, it comes to this rousing conclusion uh, that... Uh, uh, that men now in England abed shall uh, think themselves accursed. They were not here and hold their manhoods cheap. While any who speak that were there who fought on St. Crispin's Day and everybody screams with joy. And then up comes the lieutenant with a report that the French are here and they're mad. Mood drops. That's just the moment we're here in. We're celebrating the 
the relief of 12 years of chronic disease. And then all of a sudden a report comes in that the daughter of the synagogue ruler has died. She's gone. You all can move along. I know you've got other things to do. And what does Jesus do? In the, in the midst of the English translation, it kind of gets lost there. Jesus, it says in the original language, he ignores the report. He says, ah, ah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. They don't know what to make of him. He just says, carry on. Let's go. And he shows up at the at the compound, and apparently Jair is a person of means because grieving in that day was not just an emotional response; it was both a a a ritual thing, but a cultural thing, such that if you were people of means, you would you would actually pay people to come and amplify the voices of those who were grieving, and they were there. And and Jesus comes upon this this retinue of people that are all grieving the loss of this child, and then he says the most baffling thing in the entirety of the passage. He says. Why are you weeping? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Imagine yourself to be one of those mourners. Imagine yourself to be the father at, the, at that moment. Is, is Jesus off his rocker? Is he, is he more hopeful than rational? Is, he, is this some kind of uh, sick joke? We're not laughing. He's not making a joke. He says, come with me. He dispatches, he, 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 you gawking crowd, move along. And he takes Peter, James, and John, keep an eye on them for later. Come with me, along with the immediate family. They walk upstairs, and what does he do? He, he heals that daughter. He raises her from death. And look, anybody that comes to that story, even if you hold to Jesus being Lord, there's a part of you that goes, oh, it just sounds like it just couldn't happen. It's, it's just a story to impress us about who Jesus is, but it's just kind of a, it's a fabrication. It's a, it's a fairy tale. You know, Mark's gone off the map here and Jesus made a ton of a bunch of things, but this one, it just can't happen. But you know what? There's, there's four little details in that little moment that suggest that, that something, something reels there. Mark says that Jesus takes that girl's hand gently. The word is gently. He notes that. And he also notes the fact that Jesus spoke in that original Aramaic language when he said, young girl, arise, Talitha, kum. He, Mark chooses to include that language so that everybody knows this is not just an incantation. He's not doing magic. He's just speaking his language. And then thirdly, Mark tells us this girl, he tells us her age. She's 12. What, who's asking? Why would we care? Interesting, you know, Similarity, woman's been sick for 12 years, the girl's 12 years old. Why tell us that? And then fourthly, you know, Jesus says, get her a sandwich. These are little earthy details that make us think, maybe there's something more to this account than just the miraculousness of it. Maybe it's meant to push back against our such modern sensibilities that said it just couldn't be when there's these other parts that make it sound like, I think somebody's reporting something that they saw. In that moment, Jesus' perfect love casts out all fear by bringing her back to life. And what he did in a remarkable way for this woman who was suffering from an affliction, he does in an even more astonishing way and as an anticipation of something else, right? That's the story. That's what's there. What's the point? What, what were they meant to see? What are we meant to see 
in this miraculous moment. Absolutely a miracle. Absolutely something that's astonishing. Absolutely something that's wondrous. But I think what we're meant to see is the focus of the passage is what Jesus both affirms and almost pleads for. What does he affirm of the woman who was sick that touches the hem of the garment? He says, daughter, your faith, it's, it's made you well. Go in peace. And, and what does he say to those who hear this dark report of the child dying? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus is here to affirm faith, and Mark has meant us to see faith as front and center, as the subject of the passage. And there is maybe a part of you right now that's thinking, oh, shocker, a, a sermon that calls us to faith. How, how novel. But I'd like to suggest to you that, that this passage is not simply a generic call to faith, that there's something even more specific, specific expressions of faith and in multiple senses of that word that we're meant to see. And here's, here's where we get to the point, the point for us, the checklist, the checklist of faith. I think there's five things in, and they'll go fast. So see if you can keep up. Five things, five questions that I think you and I should regularly be asking ourselves as we are on our way home. And the first is this. Do we remember to ask, to seek? This terrified father, this chronically ill woman, they both have very different struggles, but they're both desperately seeking Jesus to help. They believe something. They're not sure what, and it, you can't assume that it's with perfect certainty. It's just enough for them to go ask. And they do. And it's just like those four friends that brought their invalid buddy to him. They dig a hole in the roof. They lower him down. It's because they believe that Jesus can help. That's a picture of faith. Jesus can help. They seek, they ask. And why do I need to say that? Because we're modern. And in our modernity, we are so accustomed to being able to control so much. You and I are able to control so much from where we sit, what we do, from that thing that we hold in our hand, whatever it might be. We know that. And as a consequence of our familiarity with control, we forget to ask. And not to trivialize in the least what we've all experienced in the last two years, but has not this pandemic reconfirmed for us just how out of control we really are? chapter Omicron we're all reading right now, and it says, oh, tell me a story about your control. Yeah, we're not in control, but we're still full of need. Whether it's confusion or anger or resentment, fill in the blank. We, we have need of, of much, but we forget to ask. And in this moment, I think we're invited to ask, and that's part of our checklist because that's the way he means it. Look, do you think that the first readers of Mark were supposed to take from this passage that now every single disease would be healed and that now we can go and empty the cemeteries just by naming Jesus' name like it's a bit of magic? Do you think that's what they were meant to take? Or that there's still an authority and a power in Jesus that is able to help us in the middle of our circumstances such that maybe, look, maybe you have asked, maybe you do ask, and maybe what you have asked for has not come to fruition. And you may think, what's the point? Why set myself up for disappointment? I get that. 
But maybe in our asking, there is something still to be received, even if it's not exactly the thing that we had hoped for, but something else. Faith's checklist is reminding us, do you ask? Do I ask? The second thing is this. The second question we need to ask is this. Have we have really grasped his point and his purpose such that it is our same point and purpose? What do I mean by that? He accomplishes two wonders. For what? what? For what really? Obviously for their good, no doubt. But what's what do those two things have in common? They have to do with healing, but they're out to point to something that Jesus really came for. What does he come for? It's not to impress everybody. Look, he told everybody to like keep this under wraps. Don't bring it up. He's come to make whole again. He's come to restore. He's come to set what's right, what was broken. And you hear that and maybe you think, whoa, 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 whoa. this is all about forgiveness. Jesus is all about forgiveness. Absolutely, but what is forgiveness? But, but the repair of what is broken between us and the Lord as, the, as the, the firm foundation upon which everything else is built. That's our purpose. That was his point. That was his purpose. That's ours too, but is it? Friedrich Bigner, he was a, he's still alive. He's a, he's a theologian. He's an author. When we ask ourselves the question, what are we here for? He answers it this way. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Kids, wake up. There may come a point if you're not already asking the question, why am I here for? What's this all about? Why am I doing this? Where, 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 where's this going? What are we up to here? Around here, we like to say, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, well Bigner's just kind of piggybacking on that. What are we here for? Those parts of us, where is, insofar as God would bless us to be able to use those skills, where those can be used fully in which we might excel that might fill some of the emptiest places in this world. That's, that's his place. That's his point, And that's ours too. Forgiveness is the foundation upon which all that other good stuff happens. It never happens without forgiveness, but it doesn't stop there. And we mentioned Leslie Newbegin on Christmas Eve. We'll mention him one other time here when he said this. It's a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it offers us salvation while relieving us of responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain with which our human life and that of our fellow men and women are so deeply interwoven. His point and purpose was to come make all things new, to restore them to their proper order. And many times our efforts at that will fail. It feels like, as Tolkien put it, one long defeat. But it's not in vain. And it wasn't for him and it's not for us. That's the second point of our checklist. Here's the third, and that's a little bit more subtle. Have we been liberated into Jesus' impartiality? What do I mean by that? Think about who these two people are that he helped. The synagogue ruler is a person of influence, a person of standing. His voice matters. Access to him is significant. And her? She's got nothing. No name and now no means and now no other way to help herself. You couldn't think about two more diametrically opposed people, that one who is at the center of society and one who is at the margins. And how does Jesus treat them both the same? 
He doesn't take their profile or their standing into consideration as to whether or not he treats them with dignity or extends to us to him his mercy. That's second nature to him. It is not second nature to us. We, we tend to clump with those that we are like or who we like or who like us. And, you know, if we should come into contact with somebody who is higher than us by some metric, what do we do? We either fall over ourselves fawning for them or we hold them in contempt because we envy them. And when it comes to those who are, again, at some metric lower than us, what are we tempted to do? Maybe to ignore them, to, to disregard them, to heap blame upon them, to disparage them, whatever the case may be. Their profile affects our treatment of them. And for Jesus, that is not his case. And that's why I purposely picked the word liberate, because that's something we have to be liberated into. It's not second nature. He treated them both, no matter their place, their position, what have you, with the same kind of love irrespective of their profile. And that's third checklist item that we have to ask ourselves on this journey. The first three, they've all had to do with beliefs that you hold to, but these last two, they have to believe, they deal with beliefs that you're held by. And the fourth one is this. Do you realize what your greatest gift from him is? Do you realize what your greatest treasure is? I have to ask that question. It's really subtle, again, from the passage. But when the woman seeks him out to be healed, it's something any of us would do. We would all be desperate for that. But what is the first thing that Jesus says to her after he finally sees her? He looks her in the eye and he says, Daughter. Daughter. Not just somebody, he just he calls her daughter. And that's not a patronizing term. That's not just a term of endearment. That is an address of acceptance. And in healing her of not only a physical affliction, but of that social and spiritual separation that she would have to suffer as a consequence of her disease, he was bringing her back into the full inclusion and the center of the people. He was welcoming her to her place. Why do I bring that up? Because it is so easy for us to think of Jesus as what we can get from him, when in fact the greatest thing we have from him is who we are to him. That, you know, we, we tend to treat people, you know, in light of what we can get from them, what, what we gain from them. But the greatest thing we have from Jesus is less what we get from him and most of all what we are to him. And so if I might put this in a little different way, we're all in need of healing of many things. And any of us would rightly celebrate being healed, not only of a chronic disease, but of being risen from the dead altogether. But the deepest healing that we are in search of is to know that we are beloved. Let me recycle the voice we listened to last week. Thomas Merton, a monk, he said this, The root of all Christian love is not the will to love, but the belief that you are loved. How would the last year, the last five years, the last 10 years, the last week, how would it be different if, if, if you believe not just that, you know, you were doing your job okay or that nobody was mad at you or that circumstances were reasonably manageable. What would it be different if you really believed that you were beloved of God in spite of everything? It would change the quality of your living. It would change the kind of things that you strive for. It would, kind, it would change the kind of words that you utter. It would change mine. Do you recognize that your greatest treasure is even not what he can do for you, but that you belong to him?
And it's that fourth item of the checklist that takes us to our last one that helps us embrace the fifth one. And it's this. Have you come to embrace Jesus's view of death? Again, it's the most awkward, baffling, at first glance, off-putting thing you see in the whole moment when Jesus says to all of these people who are grieving over a dead child, why are you weeping? She's just sleeping. His point is not to make a sick joke. His point is to reorient the way we even think of death, that we might even think of death as ordinary as we think of as sleep. Now, I'm under no illusions that I can just say that to you and lift out that from the passage and sort of snap my finger and say, ah, everything will be fine for you when death comes your way. In fact, we don't really know what we believe about death until we get into its presence. And there's somebody that you know, perhaps, and love, who love you, who has been in the presence of death of late, even the last few weeks, and that's Brad and Tony Ellen. Uh, they lost his mother a few weeks ago, and we came to them humbly to ask them if they were willing to share, as fresh as the experience is, what was it like to be in the presence of death, to, to be with someone in their last days and weeks, and, and what was it like to wrestle for faith, for belief in the middle of that darkness, and and hits. this is what they were glad to share with us and with you. Listen. That when you have birth, you get all the stages of birth, and someone gives you a manual. And when you go backwards and you have death, it was hard to watch the things of life walk away. I didn't expect... Uh what it would do to me, I didn't expect being, you know, both undone and having to be strong at the same time and staring in the face of something beyond my mom. And I didn't like that at all. There was not going to be a medicine or a rescue from like around like a hospital or something. I had to have a rescue bigger than what I was consumed by. And so prayer, it was it. I didn't know there, it's, it's fighting something that's there. That's really big and it's consuming me. I needed to find God in the darkness and he was there in the darkness and others were praying. And there was a battle outside of me going on and then inside of me too. And that prayer was everything. It was everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. Yeah. I journaled and prayed constantly. Um, I don't know. It was just me and God. It was just. Mm -hmm. um, and I reread some of the journaling I wrote at that time. Wow, because um, we had never lived through anything like it before. Um, because it was that time of lamenting. I just kept the promises of the Bible, um, what he says about death and heaven and human dignity. Um, it's almost like God took a highlighter during that time. And you can see it so much more plainly when you're watching death. The, the hope of heaven is... Um, so much more valuable and it's um, something to crave and long for.
and um, giving her dignity became very important to us. Yeah. Because her life was precious. And, um, I believe in the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I really do believe in that, and it's the only thing that's going to save me. But the unbelief in my heart, when you're faced with it, the sheet was kind of off that elephant, and I was like, whoa, that's big. Um, there's a lot of unbelief there. And, you know, as I said, well, I'm going to have more intimacy with God. And he was like, okay, let's get together in an intimate place because death you know, walking someone to that door is a very intimate place with God as he is um, teaching lessons there that are uh, painfully important. And going to the, the Father and just saying, um, what would that be like, Lord? And, and, and believing it when he says, um, things like always and never, I will always be with you, I'll never forsake you, and deeply believing it to the point where, as my sister said, and actually a couple other people that same week said to me, one thing was, believe like a child. When a child hears the father, he just says, oh, okay. If he says, I made the world in seven days, a child says, wow. Or says, well, now explain how that worked. And get out of your head and just be a child and believe. So that was part of my learning that's still ongoing. I wrote, during caregiving, I cried out to you. I felt like no one else was there to help. But I prayed and you came. You hid me and you helped me. You strengthened and gave us the peace and courage we needed to bathe, change diapers, massage, and get medicine. You're all that matters in the end. And all I want and need as I walk here. And now as we walk into the new year of 2022, stay with us. Guide our every thought and action, every word and emotion to your glory and honor. I bind myself to you because you are faithful and you completely bound yourself to me. And that was the... They had a lot more to say that's worth hearing. And we, we're going to put together a longer cut of their comments and try to get that out to you in due time. But what you heard in that excerpt was honest about the disorientation and about the beauty in the middle of that darkness. A darkness that was a, a struggle to find faith and be met by the Lord in it. And I think that's, that's the story for us all. That to embrace his view of death is to be reminded of as often as we can and then to, to reach for it when it gets close. Jesus is just, in using that word, death like sleep, he's just he's laying down a beat. And and Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he picks up that beat and runs with it and riff on it. And he, and he says to the church at Thessalonica, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, that you might not grieve as those who have no hope. There's a place for grief, but grief that's tempered by hope on account of Jesus's very particular view of death. Look, we, so much of our life is keyed off of the fear of death. What we do or do not do, whether we are reckless or timid. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, has come to unhand the one who has the keys of death, that he might liberate us from the fear of death from its lifelong slavery. That's the gospel.
Jesus doesn't only get near to death, he walks into it and then emerges from it so that we might actually believe it when he says, though you die, it shall you live. This is the checklist of faith for us. Something that we might need to sew into our pocket and refer to, the kinds of questions that we need to continually come back to and this journey to get home. That's our privilege. And that's our calling.